Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 6, Episode 28. And we are, for the first time, trying to record this remotely, so apologize up front if it ends up not sounding particularly great. I am currently in an Airbnb in Memphis with our mobile studio, and Mike is back in our real studio back in Michigan. So this is going to take some Mike Bussing editing magic to make this sound good. Hey, I can do it, man. Excellent. Well, let's go ahead and get into your questions, and uh, we'll get the show on the road. All right. Sounds good. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, our first question comes from listener Lauren. Can you go into detail on what signs you might expect if somebody is faking being emotional? You mentioned you had experience with that. Thanks. You know, there's not any real particular signs. I guess it's just a, as I mentioned on the show, and I guess I'll explain a little bit better now, when you do this a lot, when you do anything a lot, and you see something that's very real over and over and over again, when something is off, it just jumps out at you. So, uh, and that's why I was saying I could relate to what Stephanie Roberts was saying when she said, you know, in her experience, she there's no way she could say that that was fake. She believed it was genuine. She was genuinely upset. She was inconsolable. Gosh, I wish I could put it into words exactly. When you're watching someone who is trying to act upset as opposed to someone who is genuinely upset, things just seem more calculated. You do sometimes see a lack of tears, obviously, as uh, Jennifer Martinez said, you know, when someone's crying, but there's not any actual tears, but they're kind of going out of their way. In, in my experience, people tend to be, when they're, when they're really upset, they withdraw. Uh, they don't want to be seen. They don't want to be, you know, most people don't like people over them, around them when they're hysterically crying. They'd rather kind of pull back and be alone. But of course, that's different for everyone too. But just for me, what I've seen personally when, you know, it turns out that the person who was so distraught ends up being the person that committed the crime, whether it was an arson or whatever it was, they're more likely to make sure you see them being upset, if that makes sense. You know, they'll they'll come to you and, and, and they'll literally verbalize, I'm just so upset, I'm sad. But again, there's no way that I can describe it specifically. It's just more, for, for me, it's always just been something you can, you know what genuine concern and sadness looks like. And when you're seeing something, and I've seen that in, in a massive range from how people react, but you see what real looks like. And then when something isn't genuine or real, it just kind of jumps out at you. All right. And BJ says, you mentioned Sandy had an upset stomach. Had she soiled herself when she was found? And was she accompanied to the restroom by anyone? Yes, both of those are accurate. And there's, there's a little confusion on this because uh, Maria had testified or well, testified to and said during her police statement that Sandy had she helped Sandy change her underwear because she had urinated on herself. And um, I know there's been some discussion, but well, maybe she didn't actually defecate in her in her underwear while she was in the closet. But I mean, the evidence is is very clear on that. You know, as as the events went, once Sandy was out, Maria tried to get her under control. 
She tried to help her get dressed. Part of that was changing out her underwear. And then uh, Sandy breaks loose. And I'm not sure if she changed her underwear prior to or after finding Jim. Um, I'm a little confused on that too. But because she did say that she helped her get dressed in the closet or she was helping her get dressed prior to her going to find Jim. But then she also said that was happening after. Um, but in any case, the underwear that were removed from Sandy when she changed, because you know, Maria said she had urinated on herself, you can see in the crime scene photos that clearly that there was also feces in her underwear as well. So there's there's no question that she had, in my opinion, there's no question unless, well, I guess I'll say that. In my opinion, there's no question at all that that she had soiled her, her underwear in that way either in the closet or as she was getting out of the closet whenever it was because those those underwear got changed almost immediately after she came out and they were already soiled. Then after that, during her medical evaluation over the course, Stephanie Roberts said the evaluation took about an hour. And part of the reason it took so long was because Sandy had to keep taking bathroom breaks and go to the bathroom. She was complaining of diarrhea. And yes, she was accompanied Jennifer Martinez. That was kind of her whole job there was to keep an eye on Sandy, and she's the one that went with her to the bathroom every time she went to use the bathroom, which she said she thinks was two or three times during the hour that she was getting her medical evaluation. And this just comes to mind, is that protocol for the police officers to monitor her, to watch everything that's happening? Yeah, I think so. Um, and, you know, this was still an active crime scene. And if so if for no other reason, they want to make sure that she's not messing anything up in the crime scene. You know, she's not moving things, touching things. Also, you know, they want to preserve, you know, at some point they ended up putting paper bags over her hands uh, to protect her hands so that they could do fingernail scrapings and things like that. So things become a little bit complicated when you have someone who was at that point would seemingly be a victim of a crime, but also has some medical needs that need to be tended to. And then add to that the issue she was having with diarrhea. You know, I, I think they handled it the way that they should have handled it, which is, you know, let her get her medical eval but also have someone from law enforcement keeping an eye on her and making sure she's not messing up any evidence. You know, there was, for example, when she would go into the bathroom to wash her hands, uh, Martinez was making sure she didn't use soap. She didn't, she, you know, she used just a limited, a little tiny bit of water because they didn't want to wash any evidence off of her hands if there was any present. All right, this next one's from Jenny. The paramedic indicated that during her initial checkup, Sandra kept having to go to the bathroom because she had diarrhea. From my experience with seizure disorders, I know that it's common to have diarrhea and headaches after a seizure. Has anyone, a neurologist maybe, corroborated this on Sandra's behalf? Uh, I don't think so, not that I'm aware of, uh, but we haven't gotten into uh, the her neurologist's testimony because uh, he did testify at the trial, and he's also someone that I'm working on arranging an interview with to have him come on and explain some of this stuff to us. So that should be coming up soon. I'm hoping that that he can answer a lot of questions about just lupus and epilepsy and seizure disorders and how it affects memory and things like that in general. Um, and then also um, some details, hopefully, about you know Sandy's case specifically. But that should be coming up here in the next few weeks, we're hoping. Brianna says, I'm not sure how thorough the physical exams are when responding to 911 calls. Did Stephanie Roberts' written report specifically state there was no bruising on Sandra's wrists and forearms or did it just not state anything about bruising at all, so we are assuming there was none? If it wasn't specifically called out in the report, then how do we know Sandy was examined for bruises there? Also, do we know if Sandy was wearing a long sleeve shirt at the time of the examination? If so, Sandy was, quote, inconsolable and not complaining of pain on her arms. Wondering if Stephanie would have raised Sandy's shirt sleeves to look for bruising upper forearms if she thought just her wrists were tied. 
So I'll, I'll kind of work backwards there. So Sandy was wearing long sleeves. She was wearing, uh, you've seen, if you've been on the website and looked at the crime scene photos, she's wearing like a black robe that was long sleeved. Uh, I haven't seen Stephanie Roberts' actual report. I've only seen her testimony about her report. It's one of the items that, you know, it's listed uh, as an exhibit number. But then when we go through the exhibit volumes of the, tr- of the trial transcripts, it's not there. I suspect that's because it's medical information. But it sounds like it was noted that there were no ligature marks on her wrists and ankles. But it did say wrists and ankles. It doesn't sound like she inspected her forearms at all. Clearly not her upper arms because there was definitely no missing the huge bruise she had on her bicep. And also the bruises that were on her forearms from her ligatures were, were pretty well pronounced as well. So I think she looked, looked at her wrist. She didn't look at her forearms. And that's why she didn't see the ligature marks. And it just everything to me seems very consistent with Sandy not being very concerned about herself. She was worried about Jim. She was distraught. She was upset. She wanted to get out of there. Also, you know, I don't think Sandy knew exactly how she was bound. You know, she was in that position for a long time. I think her arms probably were going numb. You know, when I asked her about it, she said that, you know, she knew her arms were behind her back, but she didn't know exactly how they were behind her back. All she knew was that she couldn't reach her feet because she tried to kind of reach down and get to her ankles to see if she could untie that. And she couldn't reach them, but she doesn't know exactly how she was bound. So she didn't really know to tell her to look there. And she also might not have known why she was looking. Uh, she was, you know, she was looking for injuries, but probably not. I mean, there's no way that Sandy at that point could have thought that, oh, they're trying to see if I tied myself up, barricaded myself in the closet and murdered my husband. I'm sure that's not what was on her mind right then. Okay. Shanna says, Sandy has a lot of health issues. And I recall one is thyroid. I was diagnosed with Graves disease and had to have my thyroid removed. One of my biggest symptoms was memory loss to the extent I was terrified that I had early dementia or Alzheimer's. Aside from her seizures, I wonder if this could have played a role in her memory issues as well. What do you think, Bob? I think it's very plausible. I'm not, to be honest with you, I'm I'm not an expert in that and I wasn't even aware that until you just read me that question that thyroid disorders cause memory issues, but you know, it's just kind of par for the course. I mean, she there's not just one reason why Sandy might not know or remember what happened. There are a multitude of reasons. You know, the epilepsy, if she had a seizure in the postictal state, that oftentimes causes retrograde amnesia. Uh, the lupus and the lupus fog, and along with the auras, all cause memory issues. Apparently, this thyroid issue uh, can cause memory issues. That one I was not aware of. And then just traumatic incidents in general. Sometimes people will be in shock and it will block out memories. So Again, going back to the idea that people say it's just so convenient that she doesn't remember anything or that it's odd that she doesn't remember anything. I mean, there's literally at least four or five different legitimate medical reasons why she wouldn't remember anything. Anjanette says, Stephanie Roberts was asked by the DA, did Sandy have a scratch, bump, knot, scar, pinch mark, or any visible injuries? She says no. Then someone tell me who Jim was fighting to save his life and go for his gun to shoot. How could her testimony be so damning to Sandy when this most logically explains there is no way in hell she did this without one injury to her body? Yeah, that's a good point. And I think I had even said in the episode that this was the only part of her testimony that was kind of damning to Sandy was she goes through this whole list and there's no injuries. And so she, and she's sort of presenting it as, well, if she was attacked and tied up, then why doesn't she have injuries? More specifically, when she talked about the wrists and the ankles. And the head, there was no bruise on the head, you know, so she's she's trying to take away 
any excuse that someone might have for why Sandy doesn't remember anything. She's trying to lay some groundwork for the fact that Sandy wasn't bound. But yeah, the reality is, if you're looking at this objectively, it's really proof that she didn't kill her husband. Because I think it's exactly right. If she doesn't have any injuries, then how did she kill Jim? I mean, there's all the defensive wounds on Jim. This was a prolonged attack. It was in tight space. And as we've said over and over and over again, Jim's killer should have been pretty beat up. They probably had lots of bruising, scratches, could be even cuts from the knife blade. Certainly would not be in the condition that Sandy was in. Kathy says, can you explain to me why Sandy wasn't immediately taken to the hospital the first time she said she wanted to go? It bothers me that someone who said they were a victim of a crime, that they had a seizure and was obviously in shock and was hysterical, was allowed to make that decision. Honestly, having worked in situations like this for a long time, it's it's not out of the ordinary at all. I mean, Sandy, for whatever her injuries were, certainly wasn't critical. I mean, they, they, one of the first things they would have done would have been to hook her up to a monitor to get her vitals. Um, and so, you know, she had a pulse, she had blood pressure, she had no critical injuries, she wasn't complaining of any serious injuries other than her head hurting. So basically what I'm saying is there was no rush there. And these things do get very complex when there's an active investigation going on. And that's why, you know, as, as we heard Stephanie Roberts testify that when Sandy said she wanted to go, she said, okay. And then, you know, and it took a little while to get there. Because remember, she said that Sandy was so hysterical, she couldn't get, she had to keep calming her down over and over and over again. And then she kept having to use the bathroom. So it took a while before she could even speak to her properly and, and find out that yes, she did definitely want to go to the hospital. And then, of course, she's got to check with the protocols because, you know, it's not just like a normal medical case where you just run them right into the hospital. Then that's when Sandy said, you know what? Never mind. I don't need to go. And according to Stephanie Roberts, Sandy told her, and and I tend to believe her, that that Sandy said, you know, I just I don't need to go. I just got to get out of this house. I want to get out of the house. Pamela says, I recently reviewed Sandy's interrogation, and something stuck out to me as odd. Jim's actual name only comes up once. When Carazal asks Sandy, what is your husband's name? She replies, Jamie Melgar. Carazal and Doucet never mention Jim's name once. They only refer to him as, quote, your husband. To be fair, Sandy doesn't say his name again, but she's never really given her own free-flowing narrative, mostly just answering questions given to her. Is this a tactic normally used by law enforcement in interviews and interrogations? Was this purposefully done to throw Sandy off or see how she would react? Or is it an oversight? I would say it was probably an oversight. Um, It's definitely not a tactic, at least not one that I'm aware of. I mean, typically when you're doing an interrogation like that or an interview like that and you're trying to get information, one of the things you're trying to do is not only tap into the person you're interviewing's uh, emotions, but you're you're trying to gauge their emotional response. You know, there's a lot of things that the the re-technique teaches, and certainly one of them isn't not mentioning the victims. It's actually quite the opposite. You know, you want to keep putting a name and a face on that. You're trying to, because, you know, ultimately what you're trying to do is, if you're dealing with a guilty person, is to tap into their emotions and get them feeling guilty. The whole theory, remember when Tim Clementi was on the show and he talked about, you know, how interviews and interrogations work. And the idea is that it's a relief for someone to finally confess. You know, for someone who actually did something, it's hard to lie. It goes against what your brain wants you to do. It's upsetting. It's stressful. And eventually you want to get them to the point where you're giving them the opportunity to have that, that, that kind of psychological release uh, of of getting it off their chest. 
and part of doing that is, you know, you, I, it would seem to me you would want to continually name the victim and continually, you know, personalize them and make them a real person and keep trying to keep that person that you're interviewing feeling, you know, if, if they happen to be guilty, feeling guilty and feeling the weight of what they had done. So no, I, I don't think that I, I guess I would call it an oversight if those are the options, but, um, no, it's not. It's definitely not a tactic that I'm aware of. I mean, I could be wrong. I mean, I'm not an expert in that, but I've never seen it done. And while we're on the topic of words people choose to say, there was some confusion about what Stephanie Roberts said about Sandra's head injury, and some listeners cleared that up. Yeah, so that was a kind of a funny part in the when I was reading the transcripts, I I just completely misread it. So what what you're referring to, I assume, is uh, there was the line where uh, Colleen Barnett asked Stephanie Roberts. She says. Something along, I'm paraphrasing, something along the lines of, so she never said that she her head hurt. She only said she had a headache, right? And then Stephanie Roberts answers, and it was it literally confused me the way I was reading it. She said no, and then she said she said she had a headache and the left side of her head hurt. And I in the episode I said, if anybody else was confused by that, you're not alone because first she says no, and then she says yes. And um, several listeners got on the page and said, uh, I think she was answering the second question first. And when she said no, so she was contradicting. And so really, it reads something like this. When you read it in the proper context, Barnett says, she never said that she had a head injury, right? She only said that she had a headache. And Robert says, no, she said she had a headache and she said the side of her head hurt. And so it's same words, just different inflections in different places. But uh, it wasn't confusing at all, and evidently I was the only one that was confused by it. Okay, Vicky says, do you know if genealogy DNA testing is being done on the DNA found at the scene that does not match anyone? Dateline mentioned the unknown DNA on dresser doorknobs and other places that could be a burglar's DNA. I don't know what's being done right now. I, I do know that that's definitely going to be an option. Uh, but so, as you guys know, Kathleen Zellner has taken the case, and she's working directly with uh, the DA in Houston, Kim Og, and uh, I believe they've allowed for more DNA testing, and I'm sure that is on the agenda if we can get a full DNA profile. I mean, because it wasn't just the I mean, there was there was unknown DNA all over the place in that crime scene, including on Sandra's bindings. Um, so it's just a matter of if they can get a full profile, and then I would hope that. If we can't run it through CODIS or we don't get any hits on CODIS or don't have any known profiles to compare it to, that we will consider using that GenMatch technology because it's it's a very, very powerful tool and it's solving crimes left and right. Karen says, the man with the camera that Herman saw, was he seen before or after 911 was called? Can Herman describe what type of camera the guy was holding? Some people have scanners that monitor the calls to police. Also, there are people who get off taking pictures of horrific crime scenes. He may have photos of the crime scene from before Maurice and team arrived. How important could this man be to the case if we could find him? When I pressed Herman on it, he didn't have a whole lot of insight. You know, I asked him what the guy looked like, what the camera looked like. He just wasn't sure. He just remembered seeing the camera. And again, there's always a possibility that's one of those um, false memories, too, because no one ever spoke about it before. I mean, but then again, he didn't think it was really significant. He was just mentioning it. I think it was after 911 was called. As a matter of fact, I know it was because uh, Maria found Jim while Herman was still untying Sandy, and she ran outside and asked the people outside to call 911 before she went back in. That's when Herman went all the way out to the street, came back, found Jim, 
uh, was there with him for a little while with Sandy, and then he was on his way out of the house when he saw the person with the camera. So could have been just a crime scene investigator, could have been a reporter. I mean, I mean, just reporters in general. It's not just some people, because uh, there are people, obviously, that listen to scanners all the time. But, you know, news reporters constantly scan scanner traffic. And, you know, so you know, when I was in the fire department, it was it was a constant thing. You know, a lot of times there'd be camera crews or reporters on scene before we would get there. You know, if they happen to be in the area and we had to come from the fire station. So who knows? I mean, I don't know how significant it could be. I would assume not very. I think that it's it's pretty unlikely that someone connected to the crime and one of the perpetrators, number one, just, would just happen to still be there. 15 hours later when Sandy is discovered and then right when all the police and everyone's showing up decide they're going to waltz into the house uh, and draw attention to themselves. So I think that if it is an accurate memory and it really happened, it was likely a reporter. It could even be a crime scene investigator. You know, I don't know what their protocols were, if they would have cameras on them right away. Maybe it wasn't even a camera. You know, it could have been someone from EMS with a stethoscope around their neck and, and he just thought it was a camera. I don't know. but. I don't think that it's really going to be very significant. And and again, I don't think there's anything else we can do with it, even if it was. Chris says, did Herman think it was strange that Sandra knew where the scissors were and where to direct him after being groggy and waking up from a seizure? No, Herman didn't find that odd at all. Um, Some people do. I don't. I mean, if you have something like that where you always keep them in the same place, um, that's one of those things that are easier to recall. If it's, you know, if, if you never know where the scissors are, you might not be able to come up with it, but if you know that you always keep a pair of scissors and you use them regularly and they're kept right there, then I don't think it's odd at all. Herman certainly didn't think it was odd that, you know, she said there's scissors up in that counter. Jody writes, I think it's possible Herman managed to cut enough of the bindings that Sandra could free her own arms and hands. So when he handed the scissors to Maria and turned to go find Jim, he didn't see that she had gotten free of the bindings. This would explain why he said later that Maria finished cutting the arm bindings and also why Maria initially said she only cut the ankle bindings. What are your thoughts on this, Bob? I think that's very possible, but also, you know, Herman at trial didn't say that she cut the arm bindings. He said that he cut the arm bindings and then he said he hand, he made a couple snips and then he handed the scissors off to Maria to finish cutting her loose. He didn't specifically say to finish cutting her arm bindings loose. Now he did say that when he interviewed with me last year. So maybe, you know, it's just the, the way these things work. You know, it, when you have kind of those malleable memories and the story gets told over and over and over and over and over again, you know, you start connecting dots and filling in the blanks and, and end up with, um, I think I mentioned this last week, but there's a really good post on the fan page. Um, if you go and use the search function and look for Wendell Mass, he's one of our listeners. And Wendell always has some really good, insightful posts, but he made a long post about the difference between your your memories and what's a narrative and what's a story and how our brains work to kind of create one or the other and how those lines kind of get um, blended together sometimes. So as far as, you know, Herman telling me that Maria finished cutting the arm bindings and even Maria saying that, I think it's just a story being retold over and over and over again that happened to have occurred during a traumatic incident when you know, your your memory tends to have little gaps in it anyway, and they just filled in the blanks. And over time, they went from having, you know, they, they had the same story that night when they gave their statements to police. When it was fresh in their mind, Herman says he cut the arm bindings off and specifically says he handed her the scissors to cut Sandy's leg bindings off. And then Maria says, I cut the leg bindings off. And they asked her, Garcia asked her if 
She was tied by her hands, too. And Maria says, I don't know. You'd have to ask my husband when I saw her or only her legs were bound. That, I think, is our closest where we're going to be the most accurate. That happened right then. But then you watch, and over time, the story gets retold. It gets retold. It gets retold. They're meeting with lawyers. They're prepping for themselves. And it kind of blends into now Maria helps with the arm bindings a little bit. So now Herman's hearing that. And then eventually, over time, it turns into the narrative we have now. And like I said before, many times, none of that's intentional. It just, it just happens sometimes. But, you know, that's why it's nice that we have the recording to go all the way back to the beginning to hear what originally they recalled happening. Okay, this one's from Debbie. In the last two or so episodes, Bob said several times, really stressing the point, that Herman Melgar is the, quote, only person on earth who really knows how Sandy was tied up. But if Herman is the only person to know how she was tied, that would imply that Herman is the one who tied her up. Wouldn't there have to be two people on earth who know, the person who tied her up and the person who untied her? Herman untied her, but whoever tied her also knows. Yes, and that's another thing that several listeners pointed out to me. Uh, and they're absolutely right. It was a poor choice of words on my part. It was, it was obviously I was trying to stress the point that of the witnesses that the police had available to them, Herman is the only person who actually knows. And had just Herman been the one to testify at trial about that, I think we may have had a different outcome, certainly a different outlook on how Sandy was tied up. But yeah, when I said, you know, the Herman is literally the only person on the planet that knows. You're correct. That is that is inaccurate because the people that tied her up also know. Karen says, I know we are continually amazed by the lack of DNA testing, etc., as well as the lack of follow-up interviews or just interviews with people who arrived on the scene. Given all the media attention Sandy's case has gotten, have there been any people from that night, paramedics, law enforcement, neighbors, anyone that have contacted you? No, there hasn't. Um, I've reached out to some of them, but no, no one connected to the case has reached out to me. Capri says, as mad as I am about the lack of an actual investigation, this case really points out the unjustness of the entire jury and legal process. Besides contacting elected officials asking for reform, what can we do to push for an overhaul of the system? The evidence allowed to be presented, the jury selection and deliberation process, it's all just so frustrating and illogical. I mean, obviously, you know, reaching out to our legislators and things like that are hopefully effective. But what we're finding, I think, is that grassroots movements, as ours is, is probably the most effective tool for making any kind of change. I mean, I'm certain that any controversial case that is going to trial right now, there are a lot of prosecutors and police officers out there that are concerned. Like, shit, there's, it's not like we have to worry about if Dateline NBC or 2020 wants to do an hour on this. I mean, anybody with a computer and a microphone can make a podcast and people love this shit. People love true crime and wrongful conviction podcasts. And there is a chance for them to be exposed in their career ruined by anyone. And so I think that just us making them aware that we're watching them. And by us, I mean just ordinary people from around the country in general, hopefully will, will have an impact moving forward. I do think that our jury system in general needs an overhaul. As I've said before, I don't know exactly what the best way is of going about doing that, but something needs to give with the fact that we have so many mistakes within our juries. I think that eliminating Allen charges would be uh, a big move forward, you know, where the jury 
says that we're deadlocked and then the judge forces them to go back and come up with a, with a verdict, my opinion that they're going to be doing exactly what they're not supposed to do, which is voting against their conscience. Because if they already felt that it was guilty or not guilty long enough to where they feel they're deadlocked, and then they have to go back and change their vote, at that point, they're just appeasing someone just to get it over with. Um, but I think that our jurors need to be educated better. There needs to be more than a little five-minute video before they go in. Um, but but the big thing is for us that what I think is the most effective way is to continue to engage in this way and let everyone know on both sides that your work is going to be made widely public with every one of these cases. Uh, and I, I hope that will have an impact in how prosecutors and defense attorneys and judges and everyone law enforcement handles these types of cases. Listener Carol says, you've mentioned that there are some things you can't discuss yet. Any idea when that information will be available? And I think she's referring to information pertaining to the Melgar case specifically, Bob. Yeah, well, with this case and with any of our cases, there's always things that are being done that can't be talked about on the podcast, at least at this point. I can't say when certain things will be be released, but every, everything will eventually. But, you know, a lot of times, let me give you an example. So say we have a potential suspect, you know, say we get a tip and we have a, a potential suspect that we need to track down. Maybe we want to try to get DNA or fingerprints from them or something and investigate them. Well, the last thing we want to do in that scenario is is blast all over the internet. Hey, we're looking for this person, and we think they may be the one who committed this murder. Because if they are, they're going to hide. They're going to be protective. They're going to be much more conscious of of not letting in any evidence getting out there. And, and that's where we run into kind of a tricky spot because we are so powerful as a one flowing unit because everyone contributes. But then there are those occasions where there just it just can't be done that way because it will be detrimental to the case because ultimately that's what our goal is, right? Is to get justice for Jim and find his killer and put him behind bars and get justice for Sandy and get her out of there and let her be home with her family because she does not deserve to be in that prison. And there's certain things that we just can't compromise jeopardizing those two things for the sake of putting it out in the podcast. And and a lot of times you'll see things like uh, you might you might see me pop onto Facebook sometimes and say, hey, I've got you know a mission for you guys. I need somebody in this area to reach out for me because I need something. A lot of times that's things along those lines where I need help from the audience, but I can't broadcast what exactly I need it for. So as far as when you'll hear it, you'll hear it as soon as you can hear it without us jeopardizing the case. And then there's also other times where we have leads and we're in, in say, you know, a, a lead of a particular suspect. Well, we, we also ethically, I can't put out, that's why you hear me changing names a lot of times, even things that are in the record, because I just, I don't want to, in, in good conscience, blast somebody's name out as a murder suspect until information has been vetted and there's evidence and proof of that. I'm not going to ruin somebody's life. Um, so we can crowdsource, you know, looking into specific suspects. So it's just, it's one of those things where we got to just kind of toe the line a little bit and I'll ask you to be patient right now. I mean, as I told you for the next six weeks, you know, I'm, I'm home for one week. One of those weeks I'm actually on vacation, but uh, four of those weeks I'm on the road and I'm working on multiple cases. We're looking at our current case. 
doing a lot of work on the West Memphis 3 case. I, mean, I can't tell you exactly what's going on. I can tell you that I'm in Memphis right now interviewing people. And that there's just, we just kind of condensed all the work on multiple cases from Ed's to Jesse's to the West Memphis 3 case to Sandy's case. Just kind of condensed it where there's a lot of stuff that just needs me to be physically present in order to move the ball forward. And that's what we're doing right now. So, and all of that you will hear soon enough, I promise. Speaking of which, Bob, there were a lot of people who want to know when you're going to get back into the West Memphis 3 case. Yeah, I know that question gets asked constantly, both on you know Twitter and the fan page and in messages to their main page. And I just, I don't have a solid answer for it. So there's a lot of, I can tell you I'm not ready to get back into it right now. I can also tell you when we get back into it, it's going to be freaking awesome. We're definitely moving the ball in that case and we're making leaps and bounds and and the investigation is going very well. Um, but just like so the, what I was just saying, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be sorted out and and leads tracked down and vetted before we can talk about it on the podcast. And at the same time, we have Sandy's case still going on. Obviously, I'm not going to stop her case to go back to that one. So it'll be after we're done with Sandy's case, which I don't know how long that'll be. You know, we're just getting ready to launch the reward. And I believe that that will start bringing tips in, which will give us a lot of leads to move forward because we're, you know, during this, this six week period, I'm trying to put a button on, uh, the original case, the original trial. So, you know, as we wrap that up, we're moving into the new investigation. And, uh, once that's done, we'll be ready to move into either another new case or to get back in the West Memphis three case. So timing wise, you know, we're going to finish up Sandy's case. And if, the, if those two don't line up where we're ready to go with the West Memphis three when Sandy's case is over, then we're going to keep going. We'll put in another case. I'm hoping to find, cause I, like, I don't think we have too terribly much longer to go with Sandy's case. I can't put a number on it, you know, but it'll be probably a couple of months, uh, before we finish. And I don't know if we'll be ready to roll with the West Memphis three again right then. There's also some things going on with the case that are just requiring us to wait a little bit. Um, so in any case, I, I don't have an answer for it. I can promise you it's coming back. I've said this over and over again, and I feel like people don't believe me. They think we're not coming back. It is coming back. I'm actively working on that case and have been for a while, and we really have it in overdrive right now. But it will come back, but we may have a season in between there. You know, I'd love to find a case that is, if that if that happens, then maybe it's one that'll be a little shorter for us to work on. You know, maybe something we can knock out in 12 episodes or something and then get back into it. But we will be coming back to season five, the West Memphis three case very soon. Uh, I just can't tell you exactly when. All right. And Ellen says, I would love to get updates or just hear from Jesse and Patricia, George and Tamara and Ed and Kimberly. Yeah, that's something that we can definitely do moving forward. Um, I know I, I've actually missed a few calls from Jesse in the last week because we've been cramming before I left. And now I've been on the road and on the plane a lot. Um, but I've seen some several missed calls, so I, I'm hoping to catch up with Jesse here in the next day or two and have a little update on him. But yeah, we'll come back around to that. Um, hopefully sometime during this trip, I'll give you guys an update on all the cases. Sue says, when you talk about listeners supporting you through Patreon, you always mention that there's an opportunity to help host a Friday follow-up episode. However, I have yet to hear a listener on a Friday follow-up. What are your thoughts on this? <laughs> what are my thoughts on it? Um, so far, no one has uh, come to do it. Uh, we have had, so that, that's like the, the top tier patron level. And we have a few people that are in that tier and we've reached out to them. One of them I know is from California. 
and she was ready to fly out and do it, but it was the same, the week she could come was the same week Ed was getting released, so we didn't end up being able to do that that week. I assume she's still going to want to come do it, and we've got a few other people, but if you're one of those people and you're one of those patrons, reach out to us. Um, usually, Mike sends messages to everyone, and what, whether we're sending them hats or t-shirts or they get to come host the follow-up episodes, but some people have just told us that you know they they donate that much because they just want to help, but they really don't want to come be on the podcast. So, but yeah, the options out there. If you want to do that, you can go to Patreon.com/slash/TruthAndJustice, and you can see our reward levels there. And you know, the biggest one is the most. I think there's like 145 people that do the the five dollar level, so they can watch all the behind the scenes videos of the Friday follow ups. Um, but as far as hosting, yeah, just a matter of if they donate that much and they want to come do it, then they were ready. I, I would love to have somebody do it. I'm kind of bummed that no one's done it so far. All right. And that's going to do it for this week's Friday follow-up. Yep. Thanks everybody. And hopefully this sounds good. I have full confidence that Mike is going to be able to put this together and make it sound good. It's a, a new setup we have for recording remotely that we put together just for this trip. Um, so hopefully that'll sound good and just give you guys a heads up this Sunday. Uh, in two days, our main episode, I'm actually later this afternoon, I'm interviewing uh, Miss Allison Sweeney, which is not case related at all, but Allison is a big fan of our show and um, she's she's followed along through all of our cases and, and she's really into true crime. Her husband is a police officer and she just released a new series of movies on the Hallmark Channel and the baseline of the story is a true crime podcaster solving cold cases. So. Um, we we're looking for something to do this week as I, I have a very jammed up schedule and uh, I've been wanting to talk to Allison about it. So that's going to be this Sunday's episode. So it'll be a little bit of a palate cleanser will not be case related, but we're going to hear from Ali Sweeney this Sunday. And thank you to all of you for putting up with our crazy schedule right now. And before too long, things will be back to normal. And, we'll, and next week we'll have a normal episode. Right now. I'm in the middle of breaking down James Doucet's trial testimony. And that is incredibly interesting to see what the other lead investigator in Sandy's case has to say. So that'll be next week. And we'll talk to you guys then. All right. Thanks, everybody. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Rachel Timberman, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Katherine Chrisman, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. 
And if you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Well, let's go ahead and get into your questions, and uh, we'll get the show on the road. All right. Sounds good. It's funny because the show the show is on the road. We're on the road. Right. <laughs> I see what you so, did there. <laughs> to get, right. Funny. You guys get it, right? <laughs> and while we're on the topic of words people choose to say, line. Yeah, that's going to happen, Bob. I mean, come on. You can't bet a thousand every time. <laughs> You can't win them all, Mike. Sometimes you're sometimes you're just killing life, and then other times you're have a sinus infection sitting on a couch in Memphis, Tennessee, trying to record a podcast. <laughs> Feel like you want to die. <laughs> Ed hurts. Can't think. <laughs> oh no! All right. Okay. Let's keep going. With your phone on a water bottle across the room trying to make a video for your Patreon people. <laughs> oh, bummer. I had to put a shirt on. <laughs>